Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had a very interesting guest on the the show today, a guest who's really involved in some noble work, especially in third world countries. Yeah, absolutely, Preston. Dr. Jim Carrington is the president of the Donald Danforth Center, which is a nonprofit organization in St. Louis that funds plant research in all kinds of areas. In fact, they're the largest independent nonprofit plant research organization in the world. Yeah, Jim and the Danforth Center are involved in some really cutting edge technology, bringing some of the modern tech that we've developed for, you know, our American agricultural system. And they're taking that technology and really benefiting some of those subsistence farmers in places where that technology is most needed. Yeah, that's great work. And one of the things that came up over the course of our discussion, Preston, was the use of symbiotic microorganisms to benefit plant growth and benefit agriculture. And I'd encourage the listeners to go back and check out episode 35 when we spoke with Dr. Alan Bennett from UC Davis about a bacteria that they have identified that is able to fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and provide it to corn plants. For sure, Jason. Episode 35 was also a great interview. For the guests out there listening today, I'd encourage you to leave us a like, uh, leave us a review. It helps spread the word about our podcast. So without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Jim Carrington of the Danforth Center. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. To kick things off here today, would you tell us a little bit about your background, education, and career history? Well, first, thank you so much for inviting me to the show. I do not come from a farm background, so I find myself at age 61, however, immersed in agriculture and plant science. I grew up on the beaches of Southern California with an interest in biology, and so when I went to college, that's what I studied, emphasizing plant science for reasons that are still not entirely clear that were happening at the time. Um, but really, the, the way I got into plant science research and ultimately agriculturally relevant science was I just happened to need a job and I found myself in a laboratory and found that, hey, doing research is a lot of fun. And I kept at it ever since. The past 11 years has been here at the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center as president, and it's been an incredible run that we've had uh, over that period of time and uh, have been able to witness firsthand an awful lot of exciting science and discovery and technology development that's relevant to growers here and abroad. As you started your story there, I knew you were going to have to say that uh, at some point you found some passion for what you were doing because clearly you wouldn't be in in a career for three decades or however long it's been, four decades, with something that you were only moderately interested in and risen to this level of expertise as you have? Well, when I look back, and it's, it's easy to see these things in retrospect, maybe more difficult to see them at the time, but you know, research really caught my attention as an undergraduate. And then, of course, when you go on to graduate school, that's really what you focus on. But it was the uh, transition from being generally interested in biology to learning what research was that really identified research as my niche. And when I look back, what was so exciting about research, it was more like a real life puzzle. From the laboratory classes I took in college, that wasn't like a puzzle, that was like doing a recipe, baking a cake, 
But research is really trying to figure out something that is not known. How does nature work? And you're learning things that nobody else knows. So there's not necessarily a blueprint to learn exactly what you're after to learn. And so it's, again, kind of like a, a real life puzzle where the twist is you're not actually sure what the puzzle is supposed to look like. And that was a great intellectual challenge um, and one that still gets me excited about science and research and what we're doing at the Danforth Center today. Yeah, Preston and I can certainly identify with that. We both love to do research. I mean, we're, we both you know, really enjoy our jobs and that's the reason we love, you know, like you said, there's a problem coming up with a solution, understanding why the problem exists and, and finding a solution for it. And I think the other part of your story is, you know, as you kind of started off your education there, it sounds like you kind of found your niche and it wasn't necessarily exactly what you thought you were going to be doing when you started college. And that's such a recurring theme when we talk to people. And that's probably a piece of advice that we often have for students that are out there. Don't be so focused on one thing that you don't learn some other things along the way. And you might find something that you like even better or, you know, you we all seem to find our niche. And it's really interesting to see how our careers evolve from maybe what we thought it would be from the beginning when we start our education. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And uh, staying open-minded and trying different things, even things that might sound a bit odd or, you know, that's maybe off of my, my track or, uh, you know, a little too far away. Sample things when you have the chance. I think a lot of people get pretty deep in their careers when they figure out that they haven't found their niche yet. Um, and I, I, I feel sorry for those people. The ones that do find their niche, however, uh, work becomes their passion. You're usually trying to solve something that at least you feel is important. Now, I'm in a really fortunate position because I not only get to um, lead this research organization for that has all these exciting projects and exciting scientists at it, but we get to apply that science to some of the grandest challenges facing the planet and humanity, including climate change, food security. That's actually where we at the Danforth Center try to zero in on as much as we can, that nexus between food security and the environment. How do we use science to provide a affordable, nutritious and available diet around the world, but also do it in an environmentally responsible way and in the face of climate change, which is really uh, throwing uh, a whole lot of things at agriculture um, to make it more difficult. Water is less predictable with drought, heat, inconsistent weather patterns, extreme weather patterns, insects, Pests and diseases are becoming more predictable. There are new diseases showing up all the time, new pests. And it's so much of this is being driven by climate change. And it's all working against agriculture happening productively, smoothly, and in harmony with the environment. You pretty well described what the Danforth Center, kind of the, the, the mission, I guess, maybe not the official mission statement, but you've just described what you do. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of it, how it came to be and how it got started? Sure. The Danforth Center was founded relatively recently. We're a, a, a all things considered, a relatively new organization. We were founded in 1998. 
Um, so we've been around for 21, uh, 23 years or so. Uh, we grew from an idea in one person's head, Bill Danforths, in the late 1990s to an organization of about 400 people today. Wow. And we have work going on across the country and around the world. But the original motivation uh, was, uh, and the original idea was, was Bill Danforths, who was a physician. He was the chancellor at Washington U for 25 years or so. Um, he was a physician. And when he retired from the chancellorship, he asked, well, what can I turn my attention to that would have from me as a physician, what, what, what would have the most impact? And his conclusion was he could devote his efforts to something that would scale, that would benefit millions, perhaps. And he concluded that plant science was really the key to having mass impact around the world. Now, keep in mind, this was a guy, you know, relatively late in life at the time. Uh, Bill passed away last year in 2020. But it's really a remarkable journey that he set out on as this uh, new plant scientist, this physician turned plant scientist. The mission of the Danforth Center since uh, the early days has been to improve the human condition through plant science. And our vision is to apply discoveries that are made at the Danforth Center and in partnership with other organizations to uh, provide food security, to improve the environment, uh, and importantly, to help grow the economy of St. Louis around something that we do pretty good in St. Louis, and that's uh, plant science, agriculture, and um, agricultural technology. So the, from the founding, uh, you know, a scrappy startup that had no facilities to facilities in Creek Corps, Missouri, um, and operations that extend around the world, we turned into the largest nonprofit plant science research institution in the world. That's a pretty quick transition from being started by a, a medical doctor to 20 years later being so large and so impactful. And, and really, I guess I'm kind of biased being in agriculture, but if you really want to make an impact, everybody has to eat. Plant science and agriculture are the foundation of civilization. So I, I think he made a good choice and somewhere to make an impact on the world. And it's, you know, there aren't that many organizations like the Danforth Center. There's a lot of universities that do plant science research, agricultural research, but it doesn't come to mind as the first kind of thing that the public would support. And I think it, that would be in contrast to say biomedical research and a, and a center that's out to cure cancer. I think we can all, you know, everyone understands what that means. Cancer kills people. Let's solve that problem. Um, I think generally the public is, is um, less than fully aware of the challenges that agriculture faces, the opportunities uh, that agriculture presents from a career perspective, from societal perspective, and part of that is because agriculture has been so successful, you know, certainly in the developed world, um, that we've been able to take it, again, broadly in the public for granted. And th those days, I think, are behind us for taking it for granted, which is why innovative companies need to 
um, keep innovating and organizations like the Danforth Center need to keep discovering because um, you know, the future of agriculture depends on it and therefore the future of humanity depends on it. Yeah, that's not overly dramatic. Like I mentioned before, we all have to eat and, and there, there's no option there. And, and you kind of alluded to, and I think we can transition into another kind of subject here. Uh, you mentioned that in the developed world or, or in, in developed countries, agriculture has done a great job of coming along, but there are developing countries where agriculture is a little bit more rudimentary. It's a little bit more hand to mouth, so to speak. And I know one of the missions or part of the strategic vision of the Danforth Center is to uh, enable access to technology in other countries and places where they don't have as much access. So can you talk about that, the, the scope of that problem a little bit? And, and I'd like to discuss that a little bit. Yeah. Well, uh, generally, it's a, it's a massive problem. When we think about all of the technology, all of the expertise, all of the capabilities that we have to produce here in the U.S., uh, in Europe, and then compare that with large parts of the planet, um, underdeveloped regions in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, large parts of Asia, uh, there's a, a, a striking contrast. You know, if you take a look at productivity of corn in the U.S. and compare it to um, productivity of corn in Kenya, you know, we're, we're looking at 25% the, the productivity there as what we have here. That's huge. And there's, and, and it's, it all kind of boils down to um, access to technology and technology broadly across the agricultural uh, spectrum from high quality seeds that yield a lot to infrastructure, to practices, resources, inputs that are available there's just a wide gap between the two. Why is that? Well, in large part, it comes down to investments have not been made to grow agriculture as a critical sector in the economy. And therefore you have in, you know, places that we work include Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, Ethiopia. If you look at who does farming, it's primarily smallholder farmers. And there are hundreds of millions uh, in the developing world that are smallholder farmers. These are farmers that, you know, generally two hectares or less. Um, they're using seed that they're holding over from the prior year, or they're growing staple crops like cassava uh, that they propagate from cuttings year over year. So they're not they're not accessing because generally they are, they're not able to invest in high quality seed. And because they don't have the money to invest, the private sector is not providing solutions. That is high quality seed inputs and so forth. Um, so the technology gap and, the, and really the problem that we have in how do we cross that is how do we make it accessible, number one. How do we make applicable technologies affordable? How can the infrastructure be developed to support those technologies? All of those things have to happen. And you've got impact of politics and general economics and social 
issues in all of these countries. We primarily focus on um, what we can do working with partners in countries and partner organizations that first identify problems that are tractable. And then we ask, is there something that we can do to help deliver a solution or implement a technology? A lot of what we do focuses on building better seeds, seeds that have traits that are very relevant to smallholder farmers. It might be traits like insect resistance, pod borer resistant cowpea in Nigeria, for example, or uh, virus resistant cassava in East Africa. Um, these are examples of where we have technology that we've developed in-house or that our partners have developed that are relatively easy to introduce into local varieties, local um, preferred seed, um, but it really depends on having motivated partners on the ground in those countries that control the seed supplies, that can distribute, and then once an improved variety is introduced, support that variety, make sure that there's quality assurance, grow distribution, uh, if it's a beneficial variety and so forth. It's kind of an interesting philosophical concept or discussion maybe that there's a subset of people here in the U.S. or across the world that kind of romanticize the small farmer, you know, and when I say small, I mean like raising food for their own family and, you know, like you're talking about. But really, I think the improvements in modern agriculture, not that, you know, we don't want to sugarcoat and say that it's without things that we could do better, but the improvements in modern agriculture have really freed up people in developed countries to invent other things and raise the quality of life for everyone. So really, it's a, it's kind of an interesting concept if, if you know, you have a lot of experience there and, and you maybe would have some comments on that. But to see those countries where people, you know, I don't know what percentage, but 70% of the people are involved in agriculture is really just to get by. It's really a different thing than we're used to here in America, for sure. And, and 70% in a place like Uganda, that's a low, that's a low number. It's actually wow. higher than that. You know, if you look back at, um, you know, to get to the percentage of the population that lives on the farm or in rural areas in Uganda, which is around 80% or so, wow. to get to those levels living on the farm in what's now the United States, you have to go back over 200 years. That's incredible. I, I gave a TED talk on this once a couple of years ago. And this is really, this was part of the thesis of the talk in that the overall thesis is let's pay attention to the need for science in our food. Because if we don't, and we um, romanticize this notion of, you know, the family farm, let's let's get back to nature and do more on the family farm, whatever that means. That means different things to a lot of people. Well, if you start stripping out the technology that we use to produce at scale, uh, what you quickly realize is we're, we're gonna need a whole lot more people getting their fingernails dirty in agriculture. That means we'll have fewer people to be teachers, fewer people to be engineers, artists, restaurant owners, all those things that make, you know, our modern day life uh, rich and diverse. We wouldn't have society as we know it 
without technology that's gone into agriculture and into our food, that's actually the most important uh, development in society over the past couple hundred years that's freed up people to do all the things that we do uh, to develop our culture, to develop the diverse economy that we have. Absolutely. And, and just to be really clear, we're not denigrating family farms. I mean, a lot, a lot of farms, you know, we're, we're kind of using that term as the kind of the image of a, of a guy standing there with a pitchfork and a, and a straw hat on or whatever. You know, we're, we're kind of using that colloquially a little bit. That's such an important point. And it's, it's the image of the family farm or the image of what should be the family farm in the minds of the general public that's far away from what reality is. Reality is, is that we have a lot of food to produce and it gets produced by growers who are good stewards of the land, good stewards of resources, but there's an awful lot that they're doing by a relative few for an enormous number of people. Absolutely. And that's where people that's where the or, or where the, the disconnect is that to serve the number of people with only a few percentage of the population directly working on the farm, to do that is a massive technological undertaking that cannot be distilled to a pastoral scene, which is something that a lot of people have uh, romanticized. Well, Jim, I'm excited to uh, listen to your TED Talk. We'll be sure to link that in the show notes for any listeners who want to check that out. You've kind of mentioned a few of the projects that you guys are working on. I was wondering if you could kind of get into some of those interesting or promising research projects that the Danforth Center is currently involved in. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. The majority of the community at the Danforth Center are scientists, and many are working in labs, greenhouses and out in the field. Uh, so the research that we do really spans from understanding fundamental principles of how plants work, how plants capture energy from the sun, how plants resist uh, viruses, um, how plants grow and develop to make fruit and grain, um, all of these fundamental uh, things that are important to know if you want to apply science for crop improvement. Um, but then the science also extends into how do we apply what we learn to solve real problems that real people face in real places. And so that's where we ask, where are some of the biggest needs where science can be applied? Something that really has our attention, and it has for some time, is the contribution that plant science can make to addressing climate change on both mitigation, for example, sequestration of carbon or reduction of nitrogen gases, CO2 and nitrous oxide are two of the big emitters contributing to climate change and agriculture, like many other industries, is a contributor to that. So there's this opportunity where we can apply science to uh, mitigate emissions coming from the farm or uh, that are part of agricultural activities. We can also use science to adapt to a changing climate. I think the listeners will agree that climate is changing and 
the climate change that's been set in motion or that's happening is going to be happening for a long time. We have to adapt. So we need crops that are more drought tolerant, more resilient uh, to extreme weather events that are productive in regions that we're concentrating agriculture in. And we need to be predictive about it. We know that the CO2 in the atmosphere is going to be higher tomorrow than it is today. And we know that temperatures are rising and we know that droughts are going to be more common and extreme. So with knowledge like that, we can adapt to the extent that we can. And that's using science to breed crops faster, to develop traits that can be bred, that build resilience on the farm. So mitigation and adaptation are two areas that we're really, really working on. So we have uh, research, for example, looking at how we can use microbes to replace some of the fertilizer that we use. Nitrogen fertilizers are critical to um, large-scale farming, critical to any crop farming, but nitrous oxide gas is a is a byproduct that needs to be reduced. So can microbes play a role in lowering the amount of, of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer that we use? And there's an awful lot of science that's telling us, yeah, it, it, that can work. Of course, the challenge is adopting solutions like better microbes or microbes that provide environmental services, for example. How do we get those adopted at scale in commercial agriculture such that the growers can afford them, there's actual mitigation or benefits that are seen, productivity is maintained. Those are the challenges to adopting some of these solutions from nature as they're often, they're often stated. But it's something that we're working on, uh, uh, awfully hard on. And that concept of using microbes to our benefit, I mean, uh, a lot of farmers in the Midwest are very familiar with the symbiotic relationship with soybeans and rhizobium bacteria. And uh, we also talked in a, in a previous episode to Dr. Alan Bennett, who's a, a researcher at UC Davis, and he's working on uh, a bacteria that's uh, symbiotically associated with corn and working on fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere. So there's a lot of promise in those areas, and it's really an interesting area of research. And so when we look at something like microbes with the long-term goal of lowering the amount of synthetic nitrogen use to benefit farmers and to benefit the environment, we look not just at can we harness so-called nitrogen-fixing bacteria like rhizobia that takes atmospheric nitrogen and turns it into a form that the plants can use. Uh, but we look at um, the possibility that microbes can help plants take up nitrogen from the soil better. Or we look at microbes that can make the plants more robust to environmental changes or environmental extremes. You know, the, the microbes living in and around plants conceptually are a lot like the microbes that are growing in our guts. You hear a lot about the human microbiome. Well, the plant microbiome is, is just as important to the plant as our microbes are to us. And there's a whole world of science out there that 
is it needs to be discovered and then a whole wide range of applications uh, that can follow on from those discoveries to help harness uh, what's going on in nature uh, better on the farm. That might sound a little simplistic or Pollyannish, um, but I don't think it is. If you look at what's already on the market, there are an awful lot of microbial products on the market for pest control, for uh, you mentioned rhizobia in legume crops like soy. Those are the, the, the microbes today. The microbes of tomorrow are going to be doing a whole host of other growth promoting or uh, disease suppressing or pest uh, suppressing um, soil carbon building. You're gonna have microbes that are customized to crop genetics. That's something we're very interested in exploring um, how we can pair crop genetics with improved microbes such that you get more effects than what you would get just putting microbes on a crop, but rather customizing both sides so that they work together better. You know, what we often point people to around the Danforth Center here in St. Louis, we established six acres of a reconstructed Missouri tallgrass prairie. It's 100 or so plant species in the prairie. It's a great example of an urban reconstructed prairie for anyone who happens to be uh, driving down Olive Boulevard in Creve Corps. But one thing that we like to point out is we don't irrigate that prairie. We don't put fertilizer on it. We don't apply pesticides or fungicides. We, there are no inputs that go into that prairie. Yet if you look at it, it is just the most robust community of plants uh, it's visually spectacular, but ecologically, it's this amazing system. How does that happen? Well, the reason it happens is because nature is actually has customized solutions to feed the plants. There's natural fertilizers that are produced by the microbes. There are, there's natural community interactions that suppress diseases. So there's an enormous amount when we look at something like a prairie that inspires you to learn what the prairie is doing such that we can apply the principles to agriculture. Well, Jim, it's obvious you have a passion for the industry that you currently work in. I was curious, a lot of our listeners are students, and I was wondering if you have any advice for students who may want to make a difference in this industry and maybe pursue a career in um, either agriculture, plant science, or biology. Yeah, we touched on a little bit of this earlier. Get experience. Uh, figure out some way, somehow to get your foot into some sort of experience situation. Maybe you're uh, in high school and there's the opportunity to do an internship at Bayer, for example, or the Danforth Center. We have, we have high school interns every year. Maybe you're in college. Find out what the professors are doing at your college and just walk up and ask them, can I participate in the research that you're doing? Most will say yes. <laughs> uh, learn what science is about for real. Find out where there are opportunities to um, work at companies. Just get some experience so you can see firsthand what the industry looks like. And, and you know, the, the agriculture industry is really a wide ranging collection of industries. We've been talking about crop system improvement, uh, but there's an awful lot of other sides. 
precision agriculture, there's enormous potential and real opportunities and a serious demand for computer programmers and artificial intelligence experts, engineers in agriculture, precision agriculture broadly, geospatial. All of these are uh, at the heart of agricultural production these days, and it's where innovation is desperately needed. So there's room for all kinds of contributions from across, um, even the social scientists have an enormous role to play in agriculture. So I would encourage people to just step outside their comfort zone if they're not walking off a farm and learn what really happens in agriculture and where the needs are. Yeah, that's a really great point. I think that Press and I both have coworkers that are, like you said, computer programmers. We have people that are just uh, social media experts, you know, whatever it might be. And yet they're working in agriculture. They're passionate about agriculture. And, you know, maybe they're a, a videographer or whatever it is. Exactly. Um, there's all kinds of positions. If, if you're interested in helping to feed the world and your, your real expertise is, is not in growing crops, there's still a place for you in agriculture. You know, I, again, I look at what I did and where I came from. I came from, you know, the crowded suburbs of Los Angeles. Um, that I came from the opposite of a, of a farm or a rural background, but there was something that clicked for me once I was in an environment where I could apply what was intrinsically interesting to me to what I perceived as an important problem and an important contribution to society. Well, I think that's a great way to maybe wrap up here. This has been a great conversation, really interesting. We generally ask about what's exciting to you about the future of agriculture, but I think we've covered a lot of that in this entire conversation. There's a lot of things you're obviously excited about and, and the future really, you know, through the help of, of great efforts of organizations like the Danforth Center and universities and private industry even, there's a lot of things that are being improved and worked on and, and, and it's really great and it's exciting. It's an exciting industry to be a part of. If there's someone out there that's listening and they want to learn more about the Danforth Center, maybe want to connect with you. You know, obviously, like Preston mentioned, we'll link to your TED Talk because I think that sounds really interesting. And I think some people might want to catch that. But what do you recommend for someone to, to learn more? Certainly, all tracks to learn about the Danforth Center can be started at danforthcenter.org. Danforth, D-A-N-F-O-R-T-H, center, all one word, dot org. You can follow us on all social media. Twitter is a great way to learn about what we're doing at the Danforth Center, what our partners are doing, and the impact of the work that we're doing. Twitter is a great way to follow along with us. A lot of resources on our website. So start there, and you can get a long way to learn what we're doing and also what, our, what, what many of our partners are doing. That sounds great. And we'll, like we said, include all those links in the show notes. So if you're listening, check that out if you're interested in learning more. Thank you so much for your time here today, Jim. Well, thank you so much. Enjoyed it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.